The current government advice, based on science, is to stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. Like other activities, bell ringing is fundamentally affected by this in a way not seen since World War II, when the government of the day singled out a special purpose for the bells. In Britain, we had church bell ringing for centuries, until suddenly, on the 13th of June, 1940, nine months after the start of World War II, people heard on their wireless that church and chapel bells were not to be rung except for if there was an invasion. But who were the persons that decided that the bells should be used in this way? We find this out in the House of Lords in 1943. My Lords, I think it was the Chief of the Imperial General Staff who said, how are you going to get these local defence volunteers together if parachutists suddenly appear? And somebody said, why, we will ring the church bells until we can think of something better. And it became one of the essential pillars of the defence of the country. It is a complete mystery to me why that it should be so, but I am assured by War Office representatives that it is. But now let's progress chronologically, starting back in 1941 with a poem not published until much later. It's by the poet Mr A.P. Herbert called Bring Back the Bells. If we cannot inform the town that parachutes are coming down, without inviting Huns to search for targets in the parish church, the old, inventive British brain had better surely think again. In June 1942, the Ringing World reflected that On June 14, 1940, an order in council was made prohibiting the ringing or chiming of church bells, except by the military or the police, as a notification of the landing of enemy troops by air. And during the two full years since then, the bells of our churches throughout the land have been silent. No such thing had ever happened before. For more than a thousand years, we as ringers have a special deprivation, for we are debarred from that activity we most delight in, and by which, so we are assured by competent authority, we can best serve our church. But we accept the situation, not willingly and still less gladly, but without complaining. In January 1942, this letter was typical of the content of the ringing world. Dear Sir, is it not time to stop worrying about needless trifles? Some have worried over the ban. No one likes it, least of all us who have rung on Sunday since boyhood but my personal opinion has always been that once the bar was put on, it would not be lifted so long as the Germans hold the coastline of the continent. Do not be so downhearted about after the war ringing. It may not be so posh, but it will recover in time, and it will be a real treat to everyone if we can only ring good rams. A. H. Pulling, The Grammar School, Guildford. However, bell ringers were finding inventive ways to practice during the ban, as explained by the evening news. Bells or no bells, the ancient society of college youths, famous old fraternity of the bell ringing craft in London, has been meeting every fortnight at Mears and Stonebanks in Whitechapel Road to keep up their change ringing practice with handbells. 
In the past fortnight also, there has been practice ringing on the bells of St. Botoff's Bishop's Gate, with the clappers fixed and the bells thus silent. Whilst others were thinking ahead to after the war. Dear Sir, Most writers recently on the subject of post-war reconstruction have dwelt mainly on the difficulties facing the exercise. Whilst I fully appreciate that there are difficulties, I feel that there is very definitely another side to the picture. Is it not a fact that when the ban is lifted, the great majority of the general public will welcome the sound of the bells? It will be a sign for rejoicing that the war is over. Without appearing to be over-optimistic, this strikes me as an opportunity for ringers to get busy and make an appeal for recruits who will be needed to fill the inevitable gaps. We have got to do a little propaganda work, an unpleasant word, but it covers the case as I see it better than any other. The time will be ripe after the war and we must not miss the opportunity which will be presented. It is a call to action. R.W. Daniels, Captain, RASC. But then, in November 1942, bell ringers had an opportunity to ring again, given to them by Churchill himself after victory in the Battle of Al Alamein. The Prime Minister's great speech in the House of Commons altered everything. The Battle of Egypt must be regarded as an historical victory. In order to celebrate it, directions are being given to ring the bells throughout the land. The way the general public and the national press received the news that the ban on ringing was to be lifted last Sunday was wonderful, and everywhere people were looking forward to hearing once again the music of the parish steeples. The pressure was on, and the then President of the Central Council of Church Bell Ringers, Mr E. H. Lewis, gave a statement that was to be printed in the national press. May I, through you, ask the public to be indulgent in their criticisms of any ringing on Sunday morning? Ringing is an art which requires much practice, and for nearly two and a half years there has been none except in a few towers upon silent bells. Many bands will be short-handed, as their members are in the forces. Those who are left will do their best, but the quality of the ringing cannot be as good as we could wish. On the following day, the Evening Standard proclaimed in heavy headline that St Paul's bells cannot be swung, but it contradicted the assertion in the text. Mr A. A. Hughes, who is both a member of the Society of College Hughes and of the Whitechapel Bell Foundry, which has been making London bells since the 16th century, is confident the bells of both St Paul's and Westminster will ring out a full chime of peacetime strength. He said, This business of ringing the bells is not quite as simple as the government's instruction make it appear to be. Our telephone is going every ten minutes, and the calls are all coming from churches which want their bells put in order at short notice. It just cannot be done. There you are, another message from the country has just been put in front of me. They want ten clappers installed tomorrow. So what was ringing like after three years of silence? This letter in The Ringing World explains. Dear Sir, here in Tame, 
many members of the young band that existed before the war are serving with the armed forces. After the welcome news that the ban had been lifted for the Sunday morning, we could only muster four ringers at the outside. At least we thought so. But by Saturday evening, nine men had promised to come. At least two of these ringers had not handled a bell for upwards of twenty years. And although there was a certain amount of rustiness, the ringing on the whole was good. So now the ringing world led the campaign to lift the ban. One result of the ringing for victory has been a renewal of the hope that the ban on church bells will be lifted. We are quite sure that, as warnings, the bells would be completely ineffectual and useless. Even if efficient means were found of sounding them, immediately they were needed. The range of their sound is very limited and would reach only a tiny fraction of the country. Last Sunday week, when the whole country was listening, there were millions who never heard them. And it was reported on elsewhere in the press. In The Guardian, the Reverend M. H. Hoothwaite wrote, Why not ring the church bells every Sunday at least? Why keep the bells silent? I have never understood it. It is surely bad policy in every way. Bell ringers were not always completely happy with how the national press reflected their art. Dear Sir, a few days ago, when I opened a copy of the Daily Mirror, I was amazed to see a photograph of two young girls swinging in distinctly ungraceful attitudes upon bell ropes several feet from the floor. We ringers should be grateful to the Daily Mirror for its interest in our art and its repeated requests that the ban on ringing might be lifted. These facts make it the more to be regretted that the paper's representative should have been so misinformed as to be led to believe that the childish antics depicted form part of the instruction required to produce a capable ringer. R.D. St. John Smith, C.F. Catterick, Yorkshire. Not only was the issue of the lifting of the ban being debated in the press, but also... In the House of Commons on Tuesday in last week, Mr. A.P. Herbert... Independent Oxford University, asked the War Minister whether, in the light of recent events, he would reconsider the decision to use church bells as a military signal. Later in the week, Mr Attlee informed Mr Dryberg, Independent, that the question of permitting the bells to be rung on Christmas morning was being considered. The Dean of Winchester, preaching in his cathedral, said, we can look forward to the time when the bells will ring again. I confess that I wish the government would think out some fresh method for giving notice of attempted invasion. It surely cannot be beyond the wit of man. And let us ring our church bells every Sunday, and I am sure the bell ringers of England would say the same. I wish the church authorities would concern themselves with making representations to this effect. Even at the last moment, there was no certainty that the ban on ringing would be lifted. The Ringing World editorial for the 25th of December 1942 reported that they did not know whether ringing would be allowed at Christmas or not. However, the Ringing World's subsequent review of 1942 read, 
For ringers, the most outstanding event of the past year was the temporary lifting of the ban and the victory ringing for the Battle of Egypt. The interest taken by the press and the general public was surprising and was a good augury for the future. At one time it seemed likely that the ban would be permanently lifted or modified and much pressure was brought to bear on the authorities to that end. It did not succeed, however, further than securing permission for ringing during a limited period on Christmas morning. We may not have heard the last of the matter. The letters pages in subsequent issues of The Ringing World were buzzing. Dear Sir, every effort should be made so that the church bells can ring on Easter Day. The message at Easter, victory over death. Let us bow our heads in silence for a minute on that day in memory of our dear ones who have gone down in this war. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them. Charles Turner, Captain, St Mary's Ringers, Dover. Dear Sir, may I add a small footnote to your very sound and statesmanlike leader in the ringing world of February 19th? Before the war, people were continually bursting into the newspaper columns, passionately demanding in the name of their poor nerves that church bells should be silenced. Since the prohibition of ringing, the papers are full of equally passionate letters, angrily demanding that the bells should ring again. The ringers can afford to smile and bide their time. Let them meanwhile carefully collect and preserve all the published evidence that people like bells, want bells, and are indignant at the silencing of bells. Dorothy Sayers, 24 Newland Street, Witham, Essex. Dear Sir, the ban on bell ringing is still in force. Why, I for one, cannot say. In my opinion, bells should be allowed to be rung during daylight, and it should be a punishable offence to ring after dark. G. E. Simmons, 57 Mornington Avenue, Ipswich. Dear Sir, in reference to your leader in the ringing world, Bells at Easter, if the ban is lifted and we are permitted to ring at Easter, I would welcome the suggestion of Mr. Carew Cox that ringing be allowed in the evening as well as in the morning. There are no doubt many like myself on shift work who have to be on duty during some part of Sunday and in many cases could not take part in the ringing if only permitted in the morning. Three prominent ringers talked of the future. Mr Duffield spoke of the hard tasks ahead of the ringing societies, if change ringing was to be restored to the proficiency it had attained in the past two generations. He shared the views expressed by Mr C.T. Coles and Mr A.B. Peck, that insofar as cooperation between the various societies could exist, that cooperation would be forthcoming. On 31st of March 1943, the Ringing World reported that the matter had been raised in the House of Lords. Last week, in the House of Lords, the Archbishop of York, Dr Garbutt, raised the question of church bells and moved that the ban be lifted or modified. He had the support of several influential speakers. No one spoke in favour of maintaining the banning order, except Lord Croft, the Joint Under-Secretary for War, who pronounced the official decision that the ban cannot be removed. There are some people who hate bells and regard their silence as the one and only alleviating compensation of the war, but most people deplore their silence. This drew cheers from the House. 
Lord Geddes said that he was present at a meeting in May 1940 when the question was asked, what can we use for a warning? And someone, who he could not remember, said, we will use the church bells until we can find something better. The War Office had been trying to think of something better ever since. He had asked one high officer after another what he thought of the regulation, but he hesitated, in that house, to quote most of the replies. Lord Croft, joint Under Secretary for War, said the whole question had been reviewed very often. Every alternative form of warning had been considered, including a variation on the use of sirens, but none had been found satisfactory. We are convinced, he said, that the bells are the only signal which can be regarded as a distinct and definite warning. Asking leave to withdraw his motion, the Archbishop said, If the government does not make some satisfactory arrangement on this subject soon, I shall be bound to bring the matter up again. But he didn't have to because, as was reported in The Ringing World, Last week in the House of Commons, the Prime Minister, replying to Mr Greenwood, member for Wakefield, announced that the ban on the ringing of church bells would be removed. Mr Churchill said, The War Cabinet, after receiving the advice of the Chiefs of Staff, has reviewed the question in the light of changed circumstances. We've reached the conclusion that existing orders on the subject can now be relaxed. The Daily Telegraph wrote, The prohibition was accepted with goodwill and has been patiently endured but the public has never had any explanation how this particular form of warning would be effective. The Daily Mail said they have kept bells silent by the belief that Hitler could invade Britain. What makes it possible for the church bells to ring again for Easter 1943? British air power. It smashed the German invasion in 1940, and this year, with American air power, it's going to help in the smashing of German invasion power Forever. Last Sunday, the Sunday Times began a striking leader with the following passage. Bells at Easter. We scarcely expected to hear them except for some great victory, but there's a special appropriateness in the breaking of the silence of the steeples on Easter Day. For Easter bells are bells of victory. The whole affair was summed up in the leader on the front page of the Ringing World on the 30th of April. 1943. The government's decision has been generally welcomed by the press, but we do not ourselves agree with the construction some papers put upon it. The Daily Express, the Daily Mail, and to a more cautious degree the Times, see in it evidence that the government are now convinced that a full-scale invasion of this country has passed the bounds of possibility. The ban has not been lifted because of any dramatic change in the character of war, but because it is known that bells would be useless as warnings. It is quite certain that this has been known for a long time, almost from the beginning, for the military authorities have left them out of their calculations, have not included them in their tests, and have taken no adequate steps to find out whether they would be available. Or effective. The soldiers ignored the bells, the people at the war office sat tight, and no one was found able and willing to take the responsibility of reviewing the matter. But when the thing was brought into the light of day by the debate in the House of Lords, 
the Prime Minister took the matter into his own hands and did what some authority ought to have done long ago. He called the chiefs of staff together and asked them plainly whether they relied on church bells as an essential part of their defence plans. When they told him they did not, there was an end to the matter. The use of bells as a warning disappeared and nothing was put in its place. It was a small matter compared with the great issues of war, but it shows the value of having a strong and able man in supreme control. A feature article looked forward to the future of ringing. The ban has been lifted. Not completely, but sufficiently for our immediate needs. And before we consider how best to meet the problems which confront us, it may be well to take stock of the loss and gain we have sustained by these nearly three years of silence. At first sight, it may seem to have been all loss and no gain. Our bells have been dumb and our activities have been brought to a standstill. It is no good pretending we have not had loss and that we can carry on as if there had been no long silence. So much for the loss. Have we any gain? Well, strange and paradoxical as it might appear, we believe that the gain will, in the end, turn out to have far outweighed the loss, even to the extent of making the ban itself worthwhile. What the bells of England really mean to the people of England we should never have known without these three years of silence. This is a quick break to thank our sponsors, the Association of Ringing Teachers, ART. You can find out more at bellringing.org, where there are resources to support your ringing, to find out how to learn to ring or to learn to teach. Now back to the episode. To put this story together, I received relevant sections of The Ringing World from Alan Regan. One small article from the 11th of December, 1942, reads as follows. We are glad to hear that official information has been received that Mr. Dennis Brock and Mr. Kenneth Spackman, previously reported missing, are now prisoners of war in Italian hands. Mr. Dennis Brock is a member of the band at Sunbeyond Thames. We're very lucky to hear Alan interviewing Dennis on the telephone about his struggle to get home at the end of the war. So, Dennis, can you remember where you were on VE Day and perhaps talk about what you did that day? VE Day was on a Wednesday. Well, I was tramping across Saxony, around Dresden, trying to link up with the British Army. And I made it with... Some of my pals, I offered about 20 of them to come with me. They, some of them thought they would be better off going with the Russians. And they went with the Russians to Odessa on the Black Sea. I'd had enough of the Russians. So I went my way to the West and I, I said to the boys, if anyone wants to come with me, do so. You won't get into trouble from the British Army. So I, I'll see for that. And about eight of them came in and we got home. The others 
this was in my window home, but the others didn't get home from Russia until September. They didn't. So how quickly after the war did you manage to get back to ringing? Very quickly. I got home on the Wednesday, early in May. And when I got home, naturally I went to my girlfriend in the evening as we walked out of the village. The bells started ringing. But on the following Sunday, I rang for the morning at Sunbury. So the Sunday after you arrived back, that was your first ring, but you heard the bells on the Wednesday before that. Yes. I I rang up on the... I heard the bells on the Wednesday a couple of days later. I was able to walk properly. And... I went down to the church, and we pulled the bells up. We rang. Wonderful. We rang Grandfather Triple. It, it was wonderful. Various people in the village said, all those bells, Dennis must be back. That's absolutely wonderful. And I think we should remind listeners that on your 100th birthday, you also rang Grants of Triples at Sunbury. The peals and quarter peals that Dennis has rung have been reported in the ringing world, as all such ringing is. Peals and quarter peals rung to celebrate the victory were published in the Ringing World magazine on the 18th and 25th of May 1945. The footnotes were shorter, so it is difficult to know more about the story behind many of the peals. Today, we are used to seeing notes explaining the reasons for ringing, such as a birthday or wedding anniversary celebration, personal milestones in a ringing career, or to mark a special occasion in church life. Footnotes in the victory peals were deliberately restricted to simply recording those who rang their first peal. And now we are going to listen to Alan talk to Eric Hitchens, who was one of those who rang their first peal on VE Day. Now, Eric, I understand that VE Day was actually a very special day in your personal ringing journey. Can you tell us about the day? And what you and the band at North Bradley achieved? It's three o'clock in the afternoon. I was ringing my first peal. I was stood in the tower thinking, well, not earth's going to be all about. And we rang a peal of the grounds of doubles. And I rang a treble, so I was first home. <laughs> and so that was it. So we were then effectively, I suppose, covered two hours and 51 minutes. I'm sure at the time I wondered how on earth I could stand still in one place for all that time, but it passed on eventually, and therefore we came to be in the record books. Well, that, that's fantastic. Thank you, Eric, for sharing your story with us. That's wonderful. And thank you for this. It's uh, brought back some delightful memories. And so, to sum up, in World War Two, the Bells were initially assigned what might have sounded like an important role in the defence of the country, but was, in effect a ban on ringing. It took over two years, but this ban was lifted by an order at the highest level in the land and before the end of the war. Having initially supported the government line, the ringing world afterwards called it little more than rather stupid bureaucratic interference. 
After the ban, we can see, with the benefit of hindsight, that ringing did recover, and with renewed confidence, and the affection of the British people for their bells was fully revealed. Bell ringers rang in force on VE Day, so that many people only remember the ban and the bells ringing again on that day, leading historians to often get this story wrong. We can learn many lessons from what the bell ringers did when confronted with the ban in World War II, their inventiveness and their optimism, and their determination to practice their ringing throughout. And what of today's ban? Bell ringers are increasingly using technology to sustain their absorbing fascination with the art. More of that in a later episode of Fun with Bells. For now, we should follow the advice. Stay home, protect the NHS and save lives. But look forward, as our ringing forebears did, to the day when bell ringing resumes and the sound of bells will, once more, be a part of the soundscape. The readers in this episode were, in order of appearance, Steve Johnson, Simon Davis, Jill Belcher, Bob Christopher, Graham Nabb, Nick Brett, Phil Tremaine, Natalie Brett, Jenny Lawrence, Simon Linford, President of the Central Council of Church Bellringers, Andrew Wilby of Taylor's Bell Foundry, Stephen Hoare, Chris Wright, Andrew Johnson, Judith Fry, Simon Head, Chris Bullied, Stuart Newton, Alison Davis, Richard Booth, Oliver Bootley, Matthew Turner, Helen McGregor, Jonathan Stewart, Andrew Booth, and Les Boyce. We also heard the voices of Alan Regan, steward of the Rolls of Honour, who curated the articles from The Ringing World, and interviewees Dennis Brock and Eric Hitchens. The recorded bells of Great St Mary's Cambridge were rung by the Society of Cambridge Youths. Our thanks also go to Leslie Belcher, Chair of the Association of Ringing Teachers, who support this podcast series, Sue Hall for the podcast artwork, Anne Tansley Thomas, who wrote the show notes, Rose Nightingale, who coordinated the readers and their contributions, Beth Johnson and David Smith for their article in The Ringing World, Vicky Chapman of the Central Council of Church Bell Ringers, Roger Booth for script assistance, and editorial consultant John Gwynne. Technical support was provided by Steve Johnson. Fun with Bells is devised, produced and presented by Cathy Booth.